Welcome to the latest installment of the Duck of Minerva podcast. I'm really honored today to be joined by Marwa Dowdy, whose recent book, The Origins of the Syrian Conflict, Climate Change and Human Security, is, if anything, even more pertinent today with the release of the physical sciences uh, element of the AR6, assess, the uh, assessment report six by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. So Marwa, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you very much, Jared, for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be on your podcast and <laughs> honored to be discussing my book with you and your listeners. It's a great book. So I'm going to set you up here with um, sort of the common sense that you're arguing against. And so in essence, the story of the Syrian conflict goes something like this. Cl climate change caused a drought in the hinterlands of Syria, pushing uh, marginal farmers off their land and into the urban centers, and that disrupted the social contract, and all chaos and awfulness flow from there. And you're arguing that that's not quite the story that happened on the ground. So can you give us in broad brushstrokes what you're arguing in the book? So very broadly, and you summarized it very well, uh, Jared, it's, it's about these, this link between the drought in the northeast of the country, which is the breadbasket of the country, uh, the loss of livelihoods by whole communities, their migration to the urban centers, and the assumption made by scientists mainly based outside of the region uh, that climate change induced the 2011 uprisings because of the drought, because of the dispossession, and the end of the social contract, as you mentioned. So... I decided to embark on this research to show that, of course, there was a drought. The drought was induced by climate change. There has been dispossession, loss of livelihoods, and migration. But the migrants and the, the communities that fled the regions of the Northeast were not the ones at the roots of the uprisings, the peaceful uprisings. Um, there was a whole other part of the story, which is, how was this drought managed by the Syrian government? What happened? The political economy, the mismanagement of the uh, scarcity of water resources, and the mismanagement of the loss of livelihoods. And actually, I decided to set up a framework, uh, which I call the Human Climate Environmental Security Framework, in which I coined uh, the series of threats and vulnerabilities posed by variation in climatic conditions linking them to elite decisions. It's a very important part of the picture and the analysis in my view. And rather than viewing each circle, which I uh, outlined as climatic vulnerability uh, linked to political, societal, and economic vulnerability, I, I outlined the co-constitutive connections between each layer. And I go back to the history of Syria, looking at the ideological factors that drove water management that also drove uh, the political economy of environmental resources and agricultural sector in Syria, and how these ideological factors have brought in water depletion, uh, increasing the water scarcity, which was induced by, induced by climate change. And I go back to uh, you know, ideological factors such as bathism and then the neoliberal reforms of the mid-2000s, showing how the sudden shift to liberal uh, policies has also um, impacted very drastically these communities at the time of uh, high uncertainty and impact by climate change in 2006 until 2010. And more broadly, it's a method of process tracing that could begin at this outside or the very middle of these circles by showing how all these different variables interact. Uh, climatic factors are both filtered through and constructed by political structure. And the human subject's interaction with these society-wide economic vulnerabilities is also constructed by their own water and food security. And it's important for me, the context, the structures, and the capacity of the communities to have resilience or not, and, and to adapt or not to uh, the severe conditions imposed by climate change. So... One of the really great pieces of the book is the way in which you argue that climate change cannot be understood as the sort of simplistic driver of social and political events. That these outcomes are, as you just said, deeply contextual, 
based on historical decisions that predated the manifesting effects of climate change. But that raises for me an interesting question as we are increasingly confronting these physical effects, right? So on the one hand, the physical effects as the uh, new AR6 physical sciences report shows are increasingly unambiguous, right? They are with us. We can see wildfires, heat domes, et cetera. But the, what those effects mean in terms of political and social outcomes that you problematize that linkage. And a lot of that comes down to uh, political decisions, uh, social and political vulnerability slash resilience right on the other side of that coin. And I don't think we have great tools for thinking about causation with respect to climate change. And so I, I wonder how you have wrestled with this, this idea of, of causation in uh, the social sciences IR um, comparative politics with respect to climate change? So, yeah, that's a great question. And that's that's been, in fact, my dilemma because I've been writing against but also in favor of, of different you know stories. So there's been a trend in the environmental security literature to have this deterministic approach uh, saying if you have water scarcity uh, in the 80s and 90s, actually, we can date it back to the 19th century. Um, you know, when you had... Uh, sort of social Darwinistic approaches uh, to to European imperial societies, believing that in fact they were superior because of their environmental uh, factors, and that uh, I know Mike Davis has written a great book on that, showing actually how famines were created in the third world, and the the, the third world was created because of the imperial powers management of environmental resources in countries such as uh, British India, Rwanda, China, Brazil, etc., when actually there were prosperous economies at the time. So there's been this social Darwinistic, you know, approach 19th century, which was imperialistic, uh, colonial, you know, perspective. You found it later on in the 1980s with the water wars mantra, you know, saying if there's water scarcity and, and mainly in the global south, right, that would be a threat for the global north and there might be wars which will spill over, etc. With the climate security debate, this has taken on a bit of that accent saying, well, there's a causal link between, you know, droughts, um, scarcity, water scarcity, um, migration of, of whole populations in the global south, which might migrate actually to the global north. And there's a spillover of insecurities to the global north societies and actually sort of shortcuts established like that. And this is, you, you rightly pointed to the need for contextualization. And I think here, um, climate change is important. And I, and I wanna have a disclaimer here. And I think we've had this morning with the release of the AR6 you know, report um, of the six assessment report that they, they use the word inequivocable, uh, indisputable uh, findings that show that human activities have caused and are causing climate change. And in the, my case, I'm saying the drought was uh, climate induced, clearly. There's no denial because there's been a debate about whether the drought in Syria was climate induced or not. But the management of the drought later on, uh, the, the, there's what I meant, uh, referred to as triggering and structural long term. Uh, pressures matter as well. Uh, what happened in the decades before, Syria has been a country which has experienced several incidences of, of drought over its history. Why didn't we have such a conflict in the past? Why this drought and not another drought? And, and clearly, there's been political decisions taken at the time of the drought, such as the lifting of subsidies for the communities, the rural communities, which have made have worsened their conditions, their situation, when they were struggling with increased drought and water scarcity. So clearly having the whole picture is very important. At the same time, stating again that climate change matters, but again, instability is more man-made than climate-induced. So I wanna, that parlays me or, or segues me right into kind of my next question. And this is related to this issue of causation. So you argue at least to my reading in the book, that uh, we shouldn't understand the Syrian conflict in terms of climate change as a primary driver of events. That uh, climate change may have been the um, spark, perhaps, that uh, 
or it may have increased the probability of the drought occurring or whatever, right? It played some role, but really the problem, the, the driver of events were the ideational uh, uh, justifications or legitimations of the Syrian regime going back decades, dis- political social decisions about how the regime would manifest governance and the physical consequences of those things, right? So how water use was allocated, et cetera. I guess my question, and this comes back to this issue of causation, is when do we expect or how can we think about climate change as becoming a primary driver of events? So I I really struggle with this because on the one hand, I think I agree with you that, and and your approach is is, uh, laudable for sort of not letting societies and polities off the hook. We have to be responsible for the decisions that we made. California's facing drought and there are water restrictions, but why are there water restrictions? Well, they've made a lot of decisions about how they're going to allocate their water to agriculture, etc. We can't absolve Californian society or the political system there of those decisions, even if climate change is making those decisions problematic. So I, I really wrestle with how do we, how can, at what point should we, can we think about climate change as becoming a primary driver of events? Or should we even be thinking about it in those terms? Should it always be, there are physical changes, but those physical changes are, are always mediated through the social and the political? I think climate change was actually not the spark of, of the Syrian conflict of the uprisings. Climate change was a contributing factor to the overall human insecurity, in my view. And the argument I make in my book is that we should consider climate change, climate insecurity as part of human insecurity in general, as a contributing factor to conflicts. And and actually, human insecurity was the driving factor. And here, the political element is crucial. Political repression, the end of the social contract, the dispossession of the marginalized rural communities, uh, migration to urban centers, their neglect by local authorities, etc., etc., which added up in the decade that preceded the 2011 uprisings. And I think also the Arab Spring had a major role in, you know, uh, inducing that popular upheaval, the hope for social change, uh, for recognition of the population's rights. I think environmental factors are very important. Water and food security also played a role. And the fate of these neglected communities coming to the urban centers, and I've interviewed some activists who were very active during the 2011 peaceful uprisings who said, as they were completely neglected by local authorities, they were the ones providing uh, for their needs and going and visiting those marginalized communities. So how can we establish uh, if climate change is a causal you know, factor, there's a causal relation here between climate change and, and conflict. I think there's always in between in all the studies, the link is often migration. The assumption is that migrants are potential sources of insecurity. And that is also problematic in my view. Um, and this is part of framing also perceptions about human mobility, assuming that migrants are a potential existential threat, a potential threat to the prosperity and the economic security of you know, northern countries, because we often assume that these migrants will at some point come to Europe, for example, or to the Western Hemisphere to, to, lead, to lead a better life. And, and this intervening, the sort of intermediate variable, which is making the link between the two, is highly securitized. And this is what I try to write against, actually. And to also say that migrants are adaptive agents. They also bring skills and knowledge and, and know-how, etc. They adapt, they integrate in the societies, and they're not the sources of conflict. In the case of Syria, those migrants were not the ones who went to the streets in 2011. They were actually trying to survive. They were neglected, and they were trying to integrate in these new unwelcoming environments where they tried to, to, to flee, in fact, their dispossession and the, the loss of whole communities, actually. So um, if you really want to establish the link, I think there needs to be very thorough process tracing, not just saying that migration happened at some point in a country because of drought, and then there was conflict. One has to do process tracing to establish that the evidence that these you know, um, migrant communities 
have been at the source of conflicts, like taking up arms, etc. And that was not the case in Syria. I have an article forthcoming uh, this week, actually, with global environmental politics, where I apply my framework, I test my framework in two other cases, where I say, okay, Sudan and Morocco. Sudan is a case where you had a conflict after also a very uh, pronounced uh, trends of migration. And we often refer to Darfur as a, as a case, as a climate-induced conflict. Versus Morocco, the counterfactual, where you had a very severe drought in 2015. Why didn't we have conflict there? We had migration. We had a very severe drought. It's an agriculture which is mainly dependent, you know, mainly rain-fed agriculture. So you, we should have expected with that causal explanation a conflict to erupt in Morocco. And it did not erupt in Morocco because the government preempted, took the right policy decisions as of 2008, um, enacting a green plan, changing crops, doing crop rotations, addressing the needs of the local populations, and preempting any crisis and conflicts. So in that sense, there is the possibility of expanding to, to cases. And again, process tracing is a method for me which should be used instead of you know, very broad um, predictions about climate and conflict. And often I feel that the quantitative studies that I read, they look at cases in, for example, sub-Saharan Africa, where there, have been, there has been migration, there has been drought, but often there's been also conflict happening since many years, and there's sort of like endogeneity happening here, saying, well, because there's conflict, and because there's drought, and because there's migration, then we can establish this causal relation. And that's a very weak argument in my view. So bear with me for a second, because as you're talking, a couple things are sort of occurring to me, and I don't know how to connect them, but your work raises these issues, I think. So the first is, or the first puzzle for me, or the first question is the, why do we tend to think about climate change in these ways that you've talked about, right? So uh, migrants as, uh, migrants A are securitized, but then climate change causes the migration, so climate change is a security problem. Or uh, the Syrian conflict, that you had internal migration caused by climate change, which caused the conflict. And I wonder how much of this comes out of this, these tendencies to think about climate change in these ways, comes out of the predominance of American kind of political perspectives in international relations. So here I'm thinking about the effort recently Amitavacharya and others to advocate for more global IR. And, and so I, in particular, I'm thinking about the ways in which the Department of Defense in the United States has kind of seized the high ground on climate policy, in part because they could, they could bypass political dysfunction in the United States. But that has maybe introduced particular perspectives into academia that are have then become kind of almost commonsensical. I, I, does that make sense to you? Do you does, that, Absolutely. does that seem to resonate with your experience thinking about these problems? Absolutely. And actually, I, I write about global IR because I'm also very interested in, in, in showing how um, IR should be globalized. I mean, we should, as, as um, Amitavh Asharya has written extensively showing how non-Western scholars have contributed to IR and their work has not been recognized as, you know, sort of solidifying theory. Uh, they're seen as always as peripheral, you know, contributions. Mm -hmm. And actually, my, my theoretical approach to, to climate security is from a critical security perspective, where I draw on all of these uh, global IR, the critical perspectives about having climate security conceptualized from the Western, US, European perspective. And again, all the debate about Syria being a climate-induced conflict is, is triggered by Western specialists. And we had a lot of American scientists who started writing about Syria, having never researched Syria, having never done any field work in Syria, and having found in the Syrian case I believe for good reasons, in the sense we need to be alarmist about climate change. We need to draw attention. We need to mobilize the public you know, audiences and, and bring mitigation and adaptation, et cetera. And, and Syria was so much in the media that it was a good case to bring this alarmist perspective. However, 
it did somehow the opposite in the sense that it denied the human agency. It allows also the government to blame climate change for everything that happened afterwards. And that was part of the, the discourse and the narrative. And so it's a double-edged sword, I think. There's the securitization as a positive phenomenon for climate change, meaning we need to bring and alarm public audiences about what is happening. And the reverse is securitization of migration, which is creating sort of constructing existential threats and saying, well, we should be alarmed by climate change because we will have a flood of migrants coming to Europe, to the US, a flood of people and so-called environmental refugees. In the 1990s, Myers forecasted that there would be millions of environmental refugees, and this has not happened, uh, and, and warning about that. So I, I think it's both sides. The problem is when securitization brings in repressive policies against migrants, as we've seen in Europe, as we've seen in the US as well. And, and the causal analysis or the, the causal connections could also feed into these negative, repressive approaches. And I think one way to do it and to deal with climate change is to be alarmist and enough as the uh, you know, sixth assessment report was this morning. It is alarmist. It's talking about the consequences. There are wildfires. There, will, there is increased drought. That All of that will intensify in the next decade. But we don't need to be alarmist in the sense of the impacts on the victims the victims are on the ground and the victims should not be um, the culprits of all of that. And when you have securitization against migration, this is my worry in this overall debate. And I'm trying to bring back the focus to human security and to say we should look at the impacts of climate change on the human subjects, also on nature, biodiversity, on animals. It's a combination of the three, but mainly the human security aspect is very important versus the state security aspect of the DOD and other Western governments who care about state interests. So I think the human security dimension for me is a way to counter that, that, that discourse and those narratives. Your human security approach, I think, highlights another problem that we, that I think, um, I don't, your book kind of sits across IR and comparative politics. So I don't want to speak too much to the comparative politics side, but on the IR side, I think we lack tools for thinking about climate change, right? We, I, I, maybe it's a legacy of the, the predominance of materialist approaches in the neo-neo debate and et cetera. There's this, and this gets back to this issue of causation. I, I just don't think we have tools for thinking about what uh, the, the balance between the material reality of climate change and the questions of or the matters of agency that you just raised in your in your last response human agency but also thinking about individual human beings as victims of these kinds of structural processes these physical structural processes um, I don't, maybe there's nothing to respond to there, but but it seems to me like we, we don't have tools. Maybe human security is the only tool that we have right now in our toolbox for thinking about these things. Do you have any any sense as to whether that's the case or, or are there other toolboxes out there, theoretical analytical toolboxes that we can use to make sense of climate change without falling into this trap of climate change causes X? I, um, I agree with you. I think that for me, the human security tool is very important. Now, now it has its limitations. Human security is a policy concept, right? And um, Amartya Sen and Habib al-Haq were the originators, the ones who conceptualized the tool, were aiming at policy responses to protect you know, individuals and communities versus state security. This is why I bring this critical perspective. I think it's very important to question the structures, the inequitable structures internationally, regionally, when it comes to climate security, and also the perceptions, the production of knowledge, the construction of threats, which have emanated from a lot of the intelligence you know, uh, circles and security services at the end of the Cold War, uh, trying to sort of conceptualize new threats and environmental security became sort of the new the new mantra, the new field. And, and here again, we had a struggle between realists and liberal institutionalists, all of the IR discussions around environmental security 
you know, the neo-Malthusians uh, forecasting water wars versus the cornucopians who, who saw like institutions as the response, good governance, etc. But there's also the critical perspective, which in my view, the critical human security perspective, which in my view is very important. And again, you, you mentioned global IR. I think critical security mixed with global IR is still important in terms of IR paradigms, like when it comes to climate security. It's about power. It's about uh, who holds power, who, are, who the actors are, where the decisions are taken, but mainly what are the impacts for uh, human subjects and how, how the agency matters as well. And, and I think, again, from an IR perspective, I was very influenced by the securitization debate, which is this constructivist perspective of international security, which shows, in fact, how the threats are being constructed, the knowledge has been produced by some more influential actors versus others. And again, I wanted to recenter all of that to look at what are the impacts, what is the human insecurity for the populations, the communities, and the regions around the world, and how we can prevent that through mitigation, adaptation, but also um, avoiding, again, to blame the victim, to say, well, these are the sources of insecurity, when in fact, um, it's producing, you know, sort of endangering identities and saying that these populations are the potential threats in terms of climate change when actually they are the victims. And again, you're right, my book is very much an interdisciplinary uh, a project. And I, I think I'm a political scientist. Um, I'm interested, of course, I'm, I'm, I'm writing from an IR perspective, from non-traditional security perspective. But I learned from geographers, I learned from historians, I learned from other disciplines, and I tried to bring that into my analysis to say that climate security is a security issue, but it's not only about security, it's about human security, about food, about water, about um, elite decisions, uh, about uh, how, how are these populations impacted, and where where is power located and where is security located? Are we talking about state security? Are we talking about great power security? Because in the end, when we talk about the US and the Western um, uh, perceptions of it, it's, it's really about the global North versus the global South. And we need to get over that divide in my view and say, if we're talking about climate change, it's a global, uh, you know, it's a collective action problem. It's a global common issue. And, and if, if we consider like these divides when, we're reproducing these power divides. And, and that's why human security from a conceptual uh, perspective beyond the policy tool that was enacted in the 1990s, which had its pitfalls, right? Because it brought also interventionism, liberal interventionism, et cetera, could be a way forward in my view. This perspective, I think, puts agency, human agency front and center, as well as, as I mentioned earlier, the political and social systems that that human agency um, constitutes, the decisions that are made in the past. And to, for my, to my mind, there's also this issue of um, accountability or responsibility for those decisions, right? And you mentioned this, that the Syrian government could say, oh, climate change caused this problem, rather than decisions made by the Assad regime or his predecessor, his father, the decisions his father made and the consequences of those decisions. In, um, in this mix, then, is this idea that you introduce or this discussion that you have in the book about vulnerability and the flip side of that being resilience in my, my term. I don't know that you use that term that much in the book, but you do talk about adaptive capacity or the, the, uh, the ability of, of societies and, and political systems to to respond to uh, physical changes, whether they're driven by climate change or whether they're just, um, uh, you know, droughts have always been with us. So whether they're um, chronic issues, as you point out in the book, this region is not well known for its abundance of water. So how should we think about adaptive capacity, particularly, again, in the context of the AR6 physical sciences report, in, in theoretical, empirical, and policy terms? Wait, what should we be looking at? Should we, so what does is, what is analysis look like? But also, as, as advocates for an alternative perspective, what should we be looking for in policy terms from policymakers that suggest a healthy adaptive capacity? 
I think uh, you're right, Jared. Like in my book, I really focus on on vulnerability and resilience. And I, I believe that adaptation is part of resilience, the whole discussion around resilience. Uh, I see them as the foundations of, of my, my framework, my HEX human environmental climate security framework, uh, considering political, economic, and social variables at the community level, and also recentering the human subject again in those discussions. So in terms of vulnerabilities, and this is why I have the different concentric circles, um, there are different levels. Um, it's the patterns of the disruptions of, to patterns of daily life, again, from the perspective of the marginalized and the dispossessed. And these include, for example, chronic water insecurity, uh, land degradation, arable land scarcity, food insecurity, and poverty, which I analyze extensively in my book, in the case of Syria, to show how how these communities, what their experiences were over the years, and how they were impacted by the policy decisions driven by ideologies. And I include here neoliberal as the socialist ideologies, but also the inefficient irrigation schemes, et cetera, et cetera. So in relation, I, I think vulnerability cannot be understood if it's not connected to a series of resilience factors. And this is where adaptation is important. Uh, and again, resilience, it would be the characteristics of the group, the community or the person, their situation uh, that influence the capacity to anticipate, cope with, resist and recover from the impacts of the natural hazard from climate change. And clearly, these two pillars uh, show the relationship, in my view, between political, economic, climate and food, water and security. And in, this is where the, the political decisions, the political economy of climate change is important, because just to give one example from the steering case, which is very telling, the, the lifting of the subsidies on, on uh, subsidies for fuel and pesticides, which were grant, had been granted for decades, they were lifted at the worst time, which is at the, at the peak of the, of the drought of 2006, 2010, at the time when the communities really needed those subsidies. So what happened is that you had increased illegal wells dug by the communities, more water scarcity, more drought, and then the loss of livelihood by, by whole communities, which had never happened in Syria. In Syria, you had migration in the past, but it was seasonal migration. Their whole communities were uprooted and left the breadbasket of the country. So again, if we don't understand the political context and we don't think about the capacity of these communities to adapt or not, which they have done in the past, they have been able to adapt. There's been actually what I do because I'm analyzing a single case. I compare two droughts, two very severe droughts, the 98 one and the 2006 one. And I showed that the previous drought was much more drastic in terms of decrease in precipitation and increase in, in, um, in, in temperatures. But it didn't lead to conflict because the communities were able to adapt like they've been doing for centuries. Whereas in 2006, because of that drastic decision by the Bashar al-Assad government to, to include uh, liberal reforms, uh, taking out the subsidies under the incitement, of course, of the World Bank saying, well, you need to improve efficiency, etc., not considering the plight of the communities, uh, that, that created the, the catastrophe of the northeast of Syria which, by the way, is today still at the heart of, of the news, you know, the bombardments of, of the region um, and, and the, the oil and water resources being also major cards during the Syrian conflict. So, so again, adaptation is crucial, but I would also relate it more broadly to mitigation as well. And if you've seen the report this morning also, there's a, a primary focus on mitigation as well. Uh, for why we thought mitigation has failed, so we should maybe focus on adaptation. I think it's a combined strategy in terms of an efficient response to, to climate change and human responsibility in that sense, but also accountability, as you mentioned. And again, the Syrian government not only mismanaged the drought, it had also a direct role in terms of political repression or neglect of those communities in triggering uh, the 2011 uh, uprisings, which led to the armed conflict later on. The case is a really, really rich one. And there, are, I think there are a lot of lessons coming out of it. And, and many of those lessons are, have, you've hinted at them, if not explicitly discussed them in, in, in your comments. If you were advising, you know, sort of similarly positioned states about the policy lessons coming out of the Syrian case, particularly 
in terms of economic or environmental sustainability. What are the sort of key takeaways for, maybe not even for similarly positioned states, maybe for all states, maybe um, great powers or or um, states that are face um, have greater material capabilities, maybe better political governance are going to confront some of these same. Um, issues. What what are the policy lessons? What are the takeaways from the Syrian case for other states? So, in my view, there there, there was a debate happening in Syria, uh, and and I bring in the human agency here, by economists, agricultural specialists, uh, engine, water engineers, etc., uh, warning the government about the the lifting of the subsidies, warning the government about the plight of the of the rural communities. So I believe in experts' reports. I think this is very important. I believe also in in the local uh, reality, like in the sense that context matters. Um, and, and ideologies are everywhere. They're not only in Syria. They're in Europe. They're in the US. The subsidies in the US are very important as well. They also, it's very much an ideology-driven policy type of country as well. And I think paying attention to ideology in policies is crucial in determining if we have effective responses or not. And in the case of Syria also, this combination of the different factors, like they're interlinked in my view. You cannot understand climatic vulnerability if you don't look at the political, economic, and societal uh, context. Having this multi-layered, flexible, uh, holistic approach to climate security, keeping in mind the human subject at the center, and assuming that state security is also drawing on human security, not assuming it's only about, you know, arms and, and deterrence and all of these older, you know, existential security threats that were part of the Cold War, which seem to come back now, again, when we think about international relations, bringing back the focus on human security when we discuss climate security is, would be my policy advice, actually, to governments. And learning from the Syrian case is, is very telling. And again, migration is a consequence. It's not a cause of the conflict. It's a consequence of, of climate change. And the plight of migrants is very important because it adds up to the whole human insecurity in that particular picture. But also, migration is the overall tragedy nowadays, I would say, uh, more broadly you know, than, than Syria. We know about the Syrian refugees, of course, but there are refugees uh, spilling over to Europe, to, to other countries. And, and when we, we have these incremental insecurities piling up, this is where we have international insecurity, in my view. And so often the governments tend to, to disregard uh, this aspect of, of insecurity and focus on, on more broader or more um, striking um, issues of, of, of security threats. And, and I believe climate security has been tackled from a from this broader state perspective, it needs to be brought down also to the human aspect and to the human dimension. And, and again, linking all of the factors, all of the aspects. When it came to Syria, for example, increased poverty was a direct consequence of, of climate change, but also the political economy of the management of the resources. Corruption, I looked into corruption, increased corruption as well, increased poverty, increased unemployment. A lot of the the rural communities, their livelihood depends on agriculture. How, how relevant is agriculture to GDP and to, to the livelihood of, of the population? All of these aspects should matter. How, how, how much is the agriculture rain-fed versus not rain-fed versus irrigation? Are the irrigation schemes efficient or not? And what could the state or the government do to alleviate the impacts of drought on, on local communities who depend on these schemes to survive? Well, the book is is really a fantastic one, and Thank I think you. it Thank you. it really forces us to at least those of us who are it really forces everybody, but particularly those of us who are thinking about the relationship between climate change and political social outcomes to reexamine our implicit priors about those relationships. So it's definitely a an excellent read and a worthwhile read, which those two things are not always the same thing. Thank you very much, Jared. I very much appreciate it, especially coming from you. I want to take a step back. Um, and and this, uh, this part is sort of my, how I envision 
these discussions kind of inside the actor's studio, but we're not actors, inside the academic studio. I, I wonder, what are the roots of the book? How did you come to this book? How did you, what are your intellectual predispositions? How did you think about developing this book as a project? What kinds of decisions did you find yourself having to make when you were both formulating the project as well as when you were executing it? Yeah, that's a, a great question. So my background is in environmental politics. Uh, my first book was about um, actually um, the, the concept of the, the role played by power uh, in environmental negotiations between countries in the Middle East. And, and I developed a framework where I looked at power asymmetry and security issues, linking them to water scarcity in transboundary uh, negotiations, but from a security perspective. And I looked at the negotiations and the power struggle between Syria, Turkey, and Iraq. So I've, I've had an extensive sort of, you know, immersion in, in environmental politics. But over time, what actually I had started another book. I was looking into um, a mediation uh, and negotiation theory and its applicability to the Middle East peace talks and the role of U.S. mediation when suddenly the, the conflict erupted in Syria and there was this whole discussion outside of Syria, not acknowledging the role of Syrian experts or data from the ground or everything was produced outside of Syria, this production of knowledge. And, and mainly American scientists who were writing about it, getting highly mediatized, etc. I decided to change course of writing and action and thinking. And I decided to start that book because I have extensive experience in terms of field work in Syria. I started also doing more field work in Lebanon and Turkey, trying to draw on refugees' experience and knowledge to bring primary sources to the discussion, but also drawing on papers written by experts before the conflict who were actually tackling the issue of climate change and instability and the role uh, played by the government, the political economy of, of climate change. So I wanted to bring that to the discussion, and that's part of the human agency. And my background is also, I started developing from an environmental uh, politics perspective. I had a focus on negotiation theory, the role played by power, uh, asymmetry, power asymmetry. I moved on to critical security a bit more extensively. And this is where the global IR and also the critical security perspective was very enlightening. And, and to sort of move away from uh, you know, the referent object being the state to the human subject. And, and having this whole discussion also about global IR and the need for non-Western you know, voices in, in scholarship and in, in discussions. And I sort of read a lot about what happened in Syria. I talked to a lot of activists during, and refugees during my field work. I was not able to go back to Syria after 2011, but I did sort of do a lot of field work in the neighboring countries. And reading a lot also about other cases, reading all of the quantitative studies, the the conceptual discussion and, and proceeding also from an inductive perspective. Yeah, you know, like trying to build theory from what I was reading from the case study. And, and also because, as I said, because it was a single case, I wanted to be able to generalize my research findings. I chose two periods, again, the first and the second drought, and I compared them on all indicators. And I showed actually that it was not climate change because the climatic vulnerability was higher in the previous drought, not the 2006-2010 one. But then the political vulnerability and the elite decisions had differed in the second drought, which allowed me to draw these research findings and, and have this conceptual framework. So this is a bit my background. And again, an IR perspective, but I've become increasingly interested in interdisciplinary work. And I think you mentioned comparative politics. It's a mix of all that, but also geography. I learned a lot from reading, you know, articles written by geographers and a lot of the climate security debates are triggered by geographers as well. Very interesting political geography work done there and also historians of the environment, et cetera, et cetera. And I think this cross pollination and intense reflection and also feeding from the testimonies of the people who lived, I was able to trace also some refugees who came from the regions which were struck by the drought. And when I interviewed them and I told them about this thesis, which was being developed in the US and other countries, and, and I quote one of them in the book, uh, he said, well, not only we, we suffered from the drought, we suffered from the conflict, we had to flee our home 
we had to be refugees in another country, and now you're telling me that we are labeled as the, the sources of all this. This is very unfair. And I think there's an issue of also social justice here, which is very important to me as well in my work. Yeah, I think I, I actually remember seeing that quote that you're referring to. It was quite striking mm -hmm. um, in the context of the passage. So thinking about the discipline of IR uh, from your multidisciplinary and environmental politics background, what, what, what do you think the big questions are or should be that IR should be confronting that we aren't? Right. Are, are there are there pieces in the field? Are there big areas, or small areas, but of significance that IR just isn't paying that much attention to, and that we should be that we should be. So I think the 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 subfield of security studies has been very much coined from a realist perspective, in my view, and I think there's a need here to really have more critical perspectives, not only in terms of security, also in terms of IR in itself, production of knowledge. And, and you mentioned global IR. I think there's been, of course, Asharia, but there's also been uh, non-Western scholars who have written extensively about the need to expand the field and recognize also the contribution of non-Western scholars. And I'm thinking about um, Pinar Bilgin, a Turkish scholar who's written extensively. She's been very influenced by Ken Booth and the idea of critical security as emancipation as well. And there again, there's the social justice element and I think, again, this critical uh, perspective, which goes back to post-colonial studies, which some IR scholars don't recognize as being part of IR, which in my view is very important because it's also about the production of knowledge. And, and it has impacted a lot the constructivist perspectives on security by you know, developing these securitization debates about how um, you know, the narratives around an issue and the securitization of issues can create political constructs and creates sort of perceived security issues. And that goes back to post-colonial studies, actually, to show how the colonial production of knowledge is framing stereotypes, is framing sort of uh, security threats as well. And it goes back to Edward Said and, and other also uh, major contributors to, to this uh, uh, critical perspective. And I, I believe there's a need to expand, actually, uh, the, the dimension of, of IR beyond realism you know, neorealism, realism, constructivism, and, and also the critical perspective. Like I've been to conferences where people considered that Marxism was part of the past. I think those critical perspectives, especially after COVID-19, where there's been a questioning of the, you know, capitalism and international structures and the need for equitable access to health, equitable access to services, to resources, is at the heart of today's discussions. And I think IR would greatly benefit from incorporating these different perspectives and considering that they belong to IR theory and expanding you know, the different perspectives in that sense. Absolutely. Uh, couldn't agree more with you on that. Mm -hmm. When you, either in the scope of your work or, or just looking around the, the discipline, who's doing interesting work from your standpoint? Who's doing the stuff that really we should be paying a lot more attention to? From an IR perspective or environmental politics more either, broadly? Either. Either. So I, I was, I'm very interested by the work of political scientists who, who work on environmental politics like me, but bring us also this sort of ethical, you know, perspective. And, and I think here about um, um, Erica Weinthal, Jeannie Sowers, uh, between others, also uh, John Barnett, Simon Dolby, they're not political scientists, they're geographers as well, but for me, they also help, you know, contribute a lot to environmental security. Um, from a critical security perspective, I think all of the Welsh school about emancipation, I'm, I'm thinking now in terms of my new research agenda, how to bring that to issues pertaining to food insecurity, which is often disregarded or not really put at the center of, of the analysis when it comes to climate change. Um, I mentioned Pinar Bilgin, she's worked extensively on how to globalize IR, uh, on securitization and its pitfalls. Rita Floyd, Richard Matthews also have been great sources of inspiration. Ken Konka also on good governance and the need to have, uh, you know, bring it to the local communities levels as well. And when it comes to global IR also, there's been regional scholars who have 
in the Middle East, in the Arab world, who have really written very interesting um, um, papers and, and created, for example, the Beirut School of Security Studies. I'm thinking about Samir Aboud, Walid Hasboun, who, who contest this hegemony of U.S. security studies and, and show how there's been a production of knowledge locally and how these paradigms don't apply uh, in, in other hemispheres or, for example, don't help us understand what is happening in terms of security issues in the Middle East as well. So I think there's a need to expand all of that. And that's been great sources of, of, of inspiration to me. I think Amartya Sen and Habibul Haq's focus on human security has been also a great source of, of inspiration. And also Sen's perspective on entitlements, meaning there's not a shortness of supply when it comes to food, but there are entitlements which again refers back to the inequitable structures, to capitalism in the end, and the need to question these structures when we think also about climate change and its impact on water and food security and, and resources more broadly. So I've been drawing on these different you know, traditions and, and trying to have my own perspective, like being enriched by that and, and in developing the framework that I did in the book. And it's an ongoing project, of course. I'm, I'm still also thinking about all of that in my future research projects as well. Who would you say has had the greatest intellectual influence on you? So this is sort of the flip side, or maybe not the flip side, but... Um, relates to the question of scholarly intellectual priors who is who's shaped your perspective on these questions so it's not an ir scholar unfortunately but it's uh, again i mentioned edward said's um, really opening this this new perspective in the late 70s about Orientalism, you know, like how, how stereotypes are being framed, how perceptions are being framed in the literature, but more broadly also in our discipline later on. Um, the, the construction through narratives, through discourses, which is very relevant when it comes to climate security. Of course, he draws on a Foucauldian perspective, which is to show how power and knowledge intertwine to create some policy, you know, actions and and create repression in societies. And I find it very telling also when it comes to securitization. I was very interested and driven by the constructivist perspectives on security away from the traditional perspective. And here I'm thinking about Oli Weaver and Barry Buzan's work on security and securitization, which was an eye opener. But I believe they draw a lot on the post-colonial perspectives as well. And the fact that all of that is a pro product of uh, governments and elite decisions and inequitable structures, which go back to capitalism, to colonialism, to imperialism as well, if we go back to the 19th century. And um, Mike Davis' work on, on, on the production or the manufacturing of the third world through resource management was very, very interesting read for me and an eye-opener as well. And he keeps on producing very interesting work, even during COVID times, where he showed how a lot of these policies were framed from that perspective, from those structural inequities and, and creating, in fact, the unjust realities we are confronting today. And so it's a mesh of, of post-colonial, it's a mesh of critical perspectives, critical security and um, emancipation theory as well, but also a link to environmental politics, which I think uh, other scholars have worked on, bringing also the human security aspect. But again, from a critical perspective, in my view, beyond the policy tool, which was meant to bring sort of a consensus amongst nations. But from a conceptual perspective, I think if we don't address the structures uh, beyond the impacts, I think we fail in addressing the full impacts of climate change and the full consequences for, for human subjects. I have to say, I really admire the intellectual scope um, that you bring to bear. It's really, Thank you. It's really very impressive. Um, my last question for you is a question of sort of professional reflection. If you could go back in time and give yourself some advice at the start of your career, what do you think it would be? <laughs> oh, um, I think, I mean, we all agree that the academic journey is a long and bumpy road. 
uh, with beautiful encounters. I've met beautiful minds, intellectuals, and less enticing encounters where there's an increased bureaucratization of the field, unfortunately. And we have more and more bureaucrats around and fewer intellectuals. And I'm hoping that we would have more intellectuals in the future. If I went back, I would advise myself to find a support, supportive supervisor because, and I tell my students, it's very important to have a supervisor who, and a mentor who really understands you, who pushes you forward, who, who really cares about your research project and intellectual journey. And I would also tell myself to believe more in myself and, and, and not doubt what I was thinking, what I was reflecting about and not let people um, sort of stop me in my track which I managed to overcome later on when I had more, you know, confidence. And, and again, academia is a, is a bumpy road and um, it's a beautiful also path. And I would just say, I think one should have more confidence in one's capacity to grapple with these very exis existential problems and also the capacity to criticize. I think it's a field, we have the freedom to write what we want, the freedom to say what we want, but we don't have it at the same time because there are institutional networks. And I think we should be able to criticize and to go against the trend when needed. And uh, I, I advise my students to, to be vocal and to be confident about what they think is happening, what they think is right. And, and to also have sort of, I think there's an ethical engagement with our work, which is important. We're not just producing knowledge, we, we should also be thinking about ways to improve the world, the way to preempt future generations from being impacted by wars, by climate change, by bad policy decisions, and to protect also the, the vulnerable and the uh, dispossessed and the marginalized. So I think the combination of ethical engagement is important with practical policy impacts, but also combined with an intellectual journey, which is fascinating and which also allows us to be a bit more optimistic than one would start off, you know, by looking at <laughs> the world around us and coming out from a great pandemic, coming out not really, but trying to come out from a major crisis, which has had very detrimental impacts on everyone, trying to be hopeful and optimistic at the same time, um, being also cautious about that. That's a really, wonderful place to leave our conversation, at least for the time being. Thank you very much, Marwa. The book is absolutely fantastic. And Thank it you should so be, much, Jared. It should be on the reading list for anybody who's thinking about climate change and the processes by which societies and polities uh, adjust, manage, compensate, come to their, uh, come to reckon with the phenomenon, as well as ourselves as academics, the the um, theoretical uh, ideational priors that we bring to the table and the humanistic element of the book, I think is really very refreshing. So I strongly encourage everybody who listens to this to, to pick up a copy. It's really great. Um, and uh, it's been a really pleasant conversation with you. Uh, I really enjoy these podcasts because they are eye-opening for me anyway, and this has been no different. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Jared. And I, I really enjoyed our conversation. And it's part of these sometimes wonderful encounters, intellectual encounters one has in our academic path. And I'm very, very happy that we had this opportunity. And I thank you again for very interesting and stimulating and um, challenging questions, which also make me think a bit forward about how to write about these things, how to discuss them. And, and also exchanging with you has been extremely, extremely like uh, rewarding. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Marwa. of Minerva.